What was Pastor Bob thinking when he put that prayer on a roster of prayers that were risky? What's risky about asking God to have his will done? We pray that all the time. Robert sang it. We prayed it. We sing it. We say it. How can that possibly be risky? Your will be done. Where's the risk in that? Of course we want God's, build, God's will to be done. Don't we? Those were Jesus' words. So they're good words. We want God's will to be done. Don't we? Well, maybe. See, the problem with that prayer, the risk in that prayer comes from the fact that we repeat those words because we've memorized them since we were little children, for those of us who were raised in the church. They're one of the first things we learn if we join the church later. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we say them, and sometimes we don't think at all about what they mean. It was the model prayer. I'm not going to pray it again. We heard it sung, we prayed it. But thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those words matter, and when we pray them, they're risky, but only if we mean them. Only if we think about what we are asking God to do with us when we say, thy will be done. Because when we say, thy will be done, what we're really saying is, thy will, not my will, be done. And that puts things in a little different light. You know, Jesus didn't just invoke those words when he taught his disciples to pray. They're words that we pray. But Jesus lived those words. And that, my friend, is the risk. If we look at the story uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus is walking through Samaria with his disciples. And he's separated from his disciples because they go off in search of food. And he stops at a well, and he has a conversation at midday with a woman, a Samaritan woman. And she was there alone. She didn't go to the well when other people were there because she wasn't a good woman. And then Jesus engaged her in conversation ultimately changed her heart and explained to her that he was really the living water. And then his disciples came back and they were aghast. There was Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, the Lord, talking to a Samaritan woman. So they tried to distract him and turn him away from her. And this, this is how the story unfolded. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. The disciples looked at each other. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. In those words, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that doing God's will is our spiritual nourishment. It's supposed to be as important to us as the food that we eat that sustains our bodies. How many of us say, thy will be done, with that in mind? If we continue on in John's gospel, the disciples reach Jerusalem, and then one Sabbath day, Jesus heals a layman on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders were furious. He was breaking the law. He healed on the Sabbath. 
And they began to get into one of those verbal exchanges like Jesus often did with the Pharisees and the leaders. And he further angered them when he told them that, in fact, he was the Son of God, granted authority by God, life-giving like God, with the authority to judge like God. And when they were shocked and angered by those words, this is what Jesus said from John chapter 5. This is verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. And there it is. Thy will, not my will. And then there's the example of Jesus saying, thy will, not my will. The one that can bring a tear to our eye. The example of our Lord on the night that he had shared the Last Supper. He asked his disciples to go with him to the garden. He was beginning to face the fact that the time was coming and it was short before he would be beaten and tortured and crucified. And he felt anguish and trepidation and fear. He went into the garden and left his disciples behind to watch. And this is how Matthew's gospel records the events and the prayer of that evening. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he went back to his disciples, and they weren't watching. They were sleeping. He said, Can't you stay awake with me? And then he left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When we say the Lord's Prayer on Sunday morning and you say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, are you bargaining for that? No, neither am I. We're really not asked to literally go to a wooden cross and to be crucified. But we are asked to do the Father's will. And yet when we say, Thy will be done, so often we give it a shallow meaning. We don't think about it means. We, 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 God's... When we say, thy will be done, it has become for us many times a, a statement or a term of resignation, of passive shrugging of our shoulders and saying, oh, must be God's will, thy will be done. My husband died, thy will be done. I have cancer, thy will be done. I lost my job. Thy will be done. We use the term, thy will be done, to assign to God responsibility for the difficult things that happen in our life. And that's not at all what Jesus was talking about when he said that we should pray, thy will be done. He was talking us about us being active, not passive. He was talking about today, not just tomorrow. Too often we think thy will, God's will, is something for heaven. Something when the trials and tribulations of this life pass, but that's not what Jesus was teaching us. What the Lord teaches us 
about God's will is that God's will is absolutely tied together with God's kingdom. We pray those words as part of a full phrase that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I can remember a couple of months ago in a sermon series, Pastor Bob talked to us in a time of teaching, and he said, you know, don't read a scripture, just one sentence or one verse or two verses. Read it from the outside in, from the big to the little. And if we look at Matthew's gospel, we'll find that Matthew is always talking about the kingdom. It was a perspective and a theme that we find throughout Matthew's gospel. The word kingdom is found in no other book of the Bible more often than in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew understood that Christ's purpose for coming was to bring God's kingdom on earth. The book begins with tracing Jesus' lineage back to the very beginning. And in the middle of that lineage, we trace Jesus back to King David. And see, that's the kind of kingdom some of the people in biblical times in Jesus' day were looking for. A mighty king, a warrior king who would vanquish the Romans and kick them out. That's not what Jesus' kingdom was about. And that's not what it's about today. It's a kingdom of love and grace and kindness and obedience to the Father's will. The second verse or the second chapter, the second chapter of Matthew's gospel reminds us what happens when earthly kingdoms and heavenly kingdoms collide. It's the story of the Magi. We look at King Herod who tried to trick the Magi into finding Jesus and reporting back to King Herod because King Herod didn't like the competition. King Herod's kingdom was about power, it was about being able to rule others. It wasn't about being a servant. It was about pride. It was about greed. And so the Magi, receiving a word from the divine, went another way and didn't turn Jesus in. And yet we know that Herod then unleashed in Bethlehem a reign of terror where baby boys were killed that Jesus escaped. Right there, the second book of Matthew, we see what happens when human-driven kingdoms collide with God's kingdom. And it reminds us about the difference between thy will and my will. Chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, the parables about the kingdom, the seeds falling on the soil, the mustard seed, the work of the enemy planting weeds among the good crop. Those were all messages about the kingdom because Matthew knew that Jesus came to earth to teach us that we needed to seek God's kingdom, not tomorrow in heaven only, but on earth as it is in heaven. John Wesley wrote a sermon. He wrote several sermons, as a matter of fact, about the Sermon on the Mount. And they don't have catchy titles. They're called Sermon on the Mount, Discourse 1, Sermon on the Mount, Discourse 2, and so on. And when you get to Sermon on the Mount, Discourse 6, John Wesley was writing and teaching about the Lord's Prayer. And he was writing in particular about that part about the kingdom coming on earth and explaining what it meant. And this is basically what he taught. 
He said, the kingdom comes on earth first in your heart and in my heart when we repent and believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. The kingdom comes on earth first within us. And then the kingdom comes on earth and is expanded for the world to see when people like you and me who have the kingdom in our hearts, when we gather together and act as community, as Christ's hand and feet, as we did this weekend in a couple of different ways that weren't services here in the sanctuary. And finally, the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven on that great day when all of God's people, all of humanity, repent and believe. When all of creation, not just people, but animals, the natural world, are all reconciled to God, back into the form of that beautiful, original, perfect creation before it was corrupted by the likes of us. But when we say, on earth as it is in heaven... Well, what's it like in heaven? I haven't been there. I have friends there. I have loved ones there. But I don't know exactly what it's like. But if I read John's Revelation, it gives me a glimpse. What do we have? We have angelic beings. And what are they doing? They are doing God's will. Willingly. They are singing in worship to God. Holy, holy, holy. They are doing God's will. Continuously without ceasing, and they are doing it perfectly. And if we want to bring God's kingdom on earth like it is in heaven, then in our human frailty, finding perfection is kind of tough. But we can strive for continuously doing God's will, for willingly doing God's will, not begrudgingly, and doing it as perfectly as our imperfect selves can do it. That's when God's kingdom on earth will be like God's kingdom in heaven. But our wills aren't always heavenly. They're governed by sin. That sin of pride. Let me be important. Let me be at the center of things. Don't ask me to be humble because I'm really kind of better than that guy or that girl. Greed. I like my stuff. I want my stuff. Don't ask me to give up my stuff, and don't ask me to sacrifice. Fear. God, don't ask me to do that. I don't know how. I'm afraid I might fail. You haven't equipped me for that, God. I can't do it. Ask somebody else. I'm tired. People I love might stop loving me if suddenly I become a different person. Boy, I can identify with that one. When I first turned back to the church and I was contemplating the day when I was going to say to Bruce, you know, Bruce, I think I'm being called to ministry. I wasn't sure how that was going to go. And shame on me. He always supported me. I should have known he'd be okay. It would take a little while, but he'd be okay. But see, when we turn to God, we worry about those conversations with people we love. Maybe they'll see us differently. Maybe they'll think we're not fun anymore. Maybe they won't want to be around us. But when our wills are governed by Christ, everything changes. And John Wesley captured what that looks like when he wrote a prayer called the Covenant Prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray it with me this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me. 
And I'm going to ask you to pray it with me because the words of this prayer really explain quite clearly, and I will elaborate on them after we're done praying these words. They describe for us what it means when we say to God, Thy will be done. Pray with me, please. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, a wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And the covenant which we have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. I would ask that you put that prayer back up, if you would, on the screen. Because I'm going to go through and unpack that prayer and describe for you today, here and now in our world, what the phrases of that prayer mean for us. And then maybe we'll begin to understand why saying thy will be done is a risky prayer. First, I am no longer my own, but yours. We live in a country that teaches rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Earn your way. You're entitled. And now we're saying, no, I'm not my own. I'm not calling my own shots, God. I'm yours. Put me to what you will. I'll make myself available for whatever you ask. Place me with whom you will. So often when we think those, place me with whom you will, as long as they talk like me and look like me and act like me and grew up like me, and have the same amount of money I have. You see, when we say, place me with whom you will, you could end up like Mother Teresa, Saint Teresa, in the ghettos of Calcutta. Put me with whom you will, not just with who I want to hang around with. Put me to doing. Even when I'd rather take it easy, even when I think I've done enough, even when I'd like to remain on the sidelines and let someone else take the lead, I prefer passive participation, God. But when you say, put me to doing, doing is not passive. Doing is doing. And then there's the tough one. Put me to suffering. Pastor Bob really hit on that one last week. When we say, God, test me. Break me. Pour me out. We're saying to God, sometimes, God, you put me to suffering. And I know that you don't like hurting me, God, but I know that sometimes when I hurt, I have those growth spurts in your name like no other time. And boy, I can vouch for that one, folks. Let me be put to work for you. Even if I've been working my whole life at something else that I prepared for, put me to work for you doing what you want, even when it feels like it's someone else's turn and I'm tired. Put me to work for you. Or let me be set aside for you. God, I'm a leader. I want to be out in front. 
I want to be waving your flag. I want to be the boss. And God might say, oh, no, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to let you work for me, but you're going to do something that's real quiet, that doesn't come with any acclaim or any credit, because that's what I want from you. Not the upfront, out in front, come with notoriety kind of work. Let me be set aside for you. And then, let me be praised for you or criticized for you. And that is, that is really hard. Jesus spoke about that in the Beatitudes. This is what he said. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. There's the word again, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It can happen. We can be praised for God, particularly when in our, where we're in our community of faith, we're in a comfortable environment. We are of generally one mind. But when we go out into the world and people understand we are followers of Christ, they have all kinds of perceptions, some of which were given them by Christians. They might criticize us thinking we're judgmental. They might criticize us thinking we're unkind. They might criticize us thinking we're exclusionary. Or they might criticize us because we, they think we're not enlightened. How could anybody who knows anything about science believe in Jesus? But that's a sermon for another day. We bear we bear the possibility of criticism and ridicule. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. All I can say about that is, when we share communion, we say the words, let us be for you. Let us become for you a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Sacrifice doesn't mean we have to die. Sometimes it requires that of Christians, not normally here and now. But what we need to remember in the end is that we cannot be filled with God if we are full of ourselves. So when we pray, let me be full or let me be empty, we're really praying for two things. Let me be full of you and let me be empty of me. And that is why thy will be done is a risky prayer. And I hope that you'll never pray it again without thinking of what those words mean. Questions we have to ask to see if we are earnestly praying for God's will to be done. Are, are our wills, is my will aligned with God's? Do our wills promote God's kingdom on earth today, here, now? Are our wills at least a little like the angels? The psalmist said we were created just a little lower than the angels, in which case our wills should reflect willing obedience, continuous obedience, and perfect obedience, at least as perfectly as we imperfect people can provide it. Thy will be done is a risky prayer. It's a prayer worth praying. As individuals and as a church, when we pray that prayer, will we mean it? My prayer is that the answer is yes.